The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad, it's just a show. They say the best podcast is one you never have to listen to. I prefer to think that the best podcast is one you only have to listen to once. That's how my father did it, that's how America does it, and it's worked out pretty well for us so far. This is totally super. I want to vehemently disagree with everything that you just said. You should listen to all of our podcasts multiple times. Um, what are you doing? Your desperation is showing. You're, you're, telling, <laughs> you're telling everybody not to listen more? I say, like, clearly, if I look at our numbers, clearly there are some people who said, yes, there are podcasts you only have to listen to once, and this is one of them. Hopefully that's not you, dear listener. Let's try, hey, this is totally super, where we remove, where we remove, where we review every superhero movie ever you're, made. You're not making Justin. your case. You're not making a better no, case I'm not. Justin. I'm sorry. Just, I'm sorry. just, yes. just. <laughs> Hey, guess what? Today we're reviewing Iron Man. Iron Man. Yes, we are. 2008 superhero classic film from John Favreau, the film that launched a million Marvel properties. Uh, this is the mm-hmm. one, guys. This is this is it. I'm so excited to do this. Um, yeah. If you listen to the films that we've done recently, they've been as so like little personal treasures, whether we like them or hate them, whether they're films other people haven't seen or films that we've been meaning to get around to, um, whether they're films for like it's we've done a bunch of them. We've did uh, Kick Ass, Mystery Men. We've just done all these movies that are just like like you know, Fantastic Four. These movies that that aren't in the zeitgeist and have not been that have failed to be in their most recent iterations. So. I am super excited to do a movie that not only is in the zeitgeist, but is the zeitgeist. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty close to it. so exciting. What I want to ask today at the end of our show is going to be, does this film hold up? Does it still rank as the excellent film that it was when we watched it? Because let's be clear. I think everybody, when they watched this film, were like, whoa, this is what we're doing now. Okay, um, so I think it's it's important. Now, I, I let me ask you: Did you see this in the theater? Yes. And again, this is before your love your love affair with comic books. Uh, were you? Did you know Iron Man before this film? And how did you? ish, ish? Um, and because I knew it as ish, I couldn't tell you exactly how it is that I reached. He it, it was in the general cultural mindset. The nerd mindset. Like, if you were a nerd, you knew that, it, that Iron Man was a thing. I knew that Iron Man existed, yes. Yeah, but everything else. Like, if I had said Nick Fury, do you know Nick Fury? Would you have known that? Yeah. Do you think? You would. And when he said S.H.I.E.L.D., would you have known S.H.I.E.L.D.? Yes. Really? So, okay, so you're I still feel, I feel fairly... Like an, I feel like I'm getting interrogated here somehow. Well, here's the thing. This is a film that had huge crossover appeal. My dad saw Iron Man, and he is doesn't do superhero movies. He doesn't like superhero movies, but he saw Iron Man and liked it. He's like, yeah, no, I like Iron Man. I, I remember liking that. My stepmother saw this movie. This movie, and my dad and my stepmother, by the way, did not see The Avengers when it came out because that was, you know, as big as that was, and that was bigger than this film, that was too superhero-y this one had yeah iron man was more accessible iron man was more accessible uh to the non or at at the very least it was more accessible across generations than avengers was 
Yeah, um, but they wouldn't have been able to tell you who Shield was or who Nick Fury was. Um, so I'm just wondering. I I wish I mean, that we I could have, have told you who I could have told you who Nick Fury was. Like, had you asked me, like, who is Nick Fury really? Like, I probably wouldn't have been able to help you with that. You'd have been like, I saw him. He was in that David Hasselhoff special, Nick Fury, Agent of Shield. <laughs> Which <laughs> YouTube it because it's a thing. David Hasselhoff as Nick Fury. It's out there. YouTube it. It's a real thing. So we come into 2008, and in 2008, we are, um, I think we are in the middle of the Dark Knight trilogy, I believe. I believe we are, uh, I think, yeah, yeah, I think this is the same summer as the Dark Knight is this. So Batman had already begun. Um, There were Marvel properties out there. Spider-Man was was going strong in its original iteration. Uh, You had- Yeah, I have to say- even though Iron Man definitely started uh, the Marvel, uh, the like the current Marvel Cinematic Universe going, at the time, I remember when I went to go see it, I was like, oh, cool, another superhero movie. Yeah. So in that sense, I feel like the concept of, oh, there are superhero movies now and they're pretty good had already been very well established. Yeah, there were some good ones. There were some bad ones. They were like... They- but they were they were a thing and they were hits. They were no longer little things. They were actually significant hits. So yeah. you have this movie coming out. Now you have at the time, you have to understand, we look back and we go, Oh, sure, this is a no brainer. But let's be clear, this movie rises and falls on its star, as does the first I would say probably the, the, the first Avengers, everything through the first Avengers rises and falls on the star power of Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark. But let us mm-hmm. remember who and what to- like Robert Downey Jr. was at the time. This movie was Robert Downey Jr.'s reintroduction. Uh, like He'd done some good stuff before then, like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which was fantastic. Which got but- him this role. Yes, this basically put he was he had he was off the A list, and this movie put him back on it. Yeah, poor Robert Downey Jr., who like I grew up with the man. I first encountered him in a little movie called The Pickup Artist, a movie that would not do well in the Me Too movement today. Uh, it 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 belongs there with Wedding Crashers as a movie I really enjoyed when I first watched it, but I just can't do it anymore. Um, and mm-hmm. I knew him best from, uh, I want to say a little movie, a little Academy Award nominated movie called Chaplin. If you haven't seen it, he, oh, yeah. he, he portrays Charlie Chaplin in that movie. I think he got an Academy Award nomination. I don't know that he got the win, but I saw him and he was very young at the time. And I was like, this guy is, this guy is something else. This guy plays Charlie Chaplin across decades of his life and is astounding. But what Robert Downey Jr. had a problem with is, uh, as Kevin Smith might say, he had problems handling his effing high. Um, he was not able to put it together the next day. And he got famous for, you know, I think there was a story about him like waking up in someone else's house and like it just like he was on the downside. So he gets clean. He starts working again. But Hollywood's not interested. He has he has crashed and burned. And this is in just 10 years ago, the crash burn redemption thing didn't happen that much. And it didn't happen very fast. Um, I think it's probably more prevalent now that you're allowed to have a complete meltdown. But if you have a good enough mea culpa, Hollywood will let you back. Um, well, I remember time, very specifically Robert Downey Jr. Uh, I forget exactly what year it was, but shortly 
uh, after his arrest. And because he did spend, uh, I think he spent some time uh, incarcerated. Yeah, went to jail, dude. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he was, uh, but he was on SNL. And his opening monologue was essentially a photo montage of what I did over my summer vacation, uh. which was just prison, which was photos of him like in an orange jumpsuit and like right off the bat. Uh, and I didn't really know that much about uh, Robert Downey Jr. at that time other than, oh, yeah, he was that actor who got into some serious drug trouble and everything. Uh, but right off the bat, there was very much a sense of, no, I am owning this. Um, he... He was very much owning his mistakes uh, and everything I've heard about him, which uh, granted has never really been from verified sources, has been like he's somebody who has taken the rehab extraordinarily seriously. Yeah. And if you watch the extra features on this, which I did. So I'll get to my recent experience with Iron Man because I've had a pretty good time with it. Um, You have this film. uh, There was an issue with insuring the man. Like, they didn't want to insure him because of his past. They didn't want to insure him in the film. They wanted mm. anyone else in this film. But the people involved, Marvel and 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 specifically John Favreau, knew that he would have to be Tony Stark. And it's a stroke of brilliance because it is hard to tell where Robert Downey Jr. ends and Tony Stark begins. But it's yeah. the Robert Downey Jr. that we all know now and the Tony Stark that we all know now and these things have nothing to do with the Robert Downey Jr. that we all knew, we being the general public, knew that that was not the Tony Stark that, or the Robert Downey Jr. that we know. But now that we have this more seasoned, you know, more disciplined, and I think there's a, there's a, something to be said about the story of a guy who was incredibly selfish who turned around to learn to not be as the core story mm-hmm. and then casting Robert Downey Jr. in the role. It's It's brilliant. It's a brilliant way to go. Now, yeah, well, and it's go ahead. Well, especially since Tony Stark, uh, throughout his history, you know, he has uh, that is a character arc that has been unafraid to really take a look at. Like, the man has had serious trouble with alcoholism, uh, character wise. Tony Stark's a character that I didn't know all that well. Um, I didn't follow the Civil War, I was out of comics by the time uh, the Avengers started making their, their. Semi comeback. They were always around. Of course, the Avengers never went away. But I came from the time, as we've learned in the other podcasts we listened to, of the X Men. The X Men ruled everything. The Avengers were also rans. Tony Stark, Iron Man was an also ran comic. Captain America was an also ran comic. Everything else, it was either Spider Man or the X Men. And even Spider Man got overshadowed by the X Men when I was growing up. So. This was a character that I was aware of who he was. I remember him being in a wheelchair at one point. That's kind of how I remembered him. And I thought that would be a really cool like take on a character, a character who is actually disabled. But in the armor, he doesn't have to be disabled. I thought that was neat. I remembered right. the, the demon in a bottle storyline being a storyline. But I don't remember it as... I never read it. I just knew that it had happened. I knew that he mm-hmm. was... Um, basically Marvel's Batman is kind of the way I knew it. I knew that uh, Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, supplied all of the neat tech to the Spider-Friends in the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends TV show. So mm-hmm. in the the I don't know if you ever watched that show, but they had this little lever that they pulled and everything turned around. There were supercomputers, and the day they get that, that's given to them by Tony Stark. So I am aware of him, 
and I know who he is and what he is and his position of the Avengers, but that's kind of all I know. And I know that he is a third tier character. So the fact that they were doing Iron Man, I was like, okay, good on them. I guess I guess they'll do one on anyone. I mean, it's, it's you know, yeah, I'll watch this. I'll watch any superhero film that comes down the pike. Little did I know that we were watching the superhero for our time. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. going in, anybody had a sense that this would be the case. But I think that walking out of that film, everyone was like, holy crap, this is the superhero for our time. Well, certainly uh, by the end, I think this was the first film that really was this the first film that started the Marvel tradition of the post credit scene. Like, I know there had been films that had post credits thing, but like this was the first one where it was like, hey, we just dropped a major bomb about our plans in the future. Well, let's be clear. This is the first film that had major plans for the future. That's really worth noting. That's an important thing to know mm-hmm. in the history. It's one of the things that sets it apart. There, of course, even if at the time the plan, even if at the time the plans were mostly like maybe hopes, as in the sense of, oh, if this movie does well, then these are plans. Yeah, but but there had never. I'm trying to think across comic book movies specifically. There were not. There there was not a sense of 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 there is something more coming. The serialized nature of comic book movies was just not a thing. The Spider-Man movies picked up on the movie before, but didn't <coughs> didn't always need a sequel. They always seemed, even like Spider-Man 2, you would feel like that's connective tissue, but if there was never a Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man, or Spider-Man 3, Spider-Man 2 works really well as a send-off. Um, and yeah. it's like he's going out being Spider-Man from now on. And Spider-Man 3 has a definitive ending as well, but also works okay as a send-off. Um, I guess Spider-Man mm-hmm. 2 did have the running... Um, it did have the running Harry Osborn story that wasn't resolved in the second one that needed to be resolved in the third one. So I guess yeah. that worked, but you did feel like and, that was a trilogy. Like, And also, it's is, like Iron Man... Interestingly, Iron the Iron Man films don't necessarily do that much to set up the next Iron Man film. Um, like I feel like the three Iron Man films are kind of connected to each other with maybe only a little bit more strength than the Spider-Man films were. But every Iron Man film does a whole lot to either set up the next uh, the next few films in the Marvel Universe or is specifically uh, like the way that both Spider or both Iron Man 2 and Iron Man 3 start, I believe, are directly because of events that have occurred in other films. So like Iron not Man a, doesn't necessarily set itself it doesn't necessarily set itself up. Iron Man 2 is still pre-Avengers. Well, Iron Man 2? Yeah, Iron Man 2 is still pre Because Iron Man 2 Iron Man 2 is still pre Avengers, okay. Yeah. Um now but it's it's worth noting yeah. I feel like the entire Marvel universe is a sequel to Avengers. Like I really do. Even Avengers: Infinity War, the way that 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 Hulk gets uh, Tony on board is to go. He's the one behind New York. Like that's the the mm-hmm. invasion of New York and the Avengers. Yeah, the the is, incident in New York pretty much colors everything in the Marvel universe. Right yeah, now. and it's always mentioned as sort of the touchstone where where things happen. Uh, even in even mm-hmm. in properties like even in properties like Daredevil, they mention it as being a thing. Mm-hmm. So it is. You get the sense that really in Avengers, that that incident, the incident in New York, was the moment that the world changed. Yeah. So that is, and every I feel like every Marvel movie after the Avengers is about the Avengers in some way or another, Mm -hmm. with exceptions of maybe the first Ant Man and the first Guardians of the Galaxy. Although I say that about the first Guardians of the Galaxy, which has Thanos in a speaking role. So like. (laughs) Oh, that's true. um, Yeah. Um, I think that that 
yeah, so this is absolutely the this is the first Marvel. Um, this is the first Marvel cinematic film. Marvel did release the Blade films before this. Um, that uh, that were the first films to have the the flipping Marvel thing was was the first Blade movie, and of course they had the X Men over at Fox, Fantastic Four over at Fox. They had Sony running the 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 Spider Man stuff, but this is the first film that Marvel self financed, and Marvel finally had enough money to make a film. Had this film failed, Marvel would have been done. Marvel put all of its mm-hmm. chips in into the center and said, "Okay, this is what we're doing." We're going to do this. This is going to work, or it's not. And it's worth noting that the uh, that the Incredible Hulk film that comes right after this first Iron Man film is the the Incredible Hulk film is. I think it's Paramount that also has rights to that. One. Paramount is the distributor on this one. I think it's Paramount that has rights to the Incredible Hulk film, um, so much so that. Marvel can't put out an Incredible Hulk film if they want. They can't have a movie called the, the Hulk can't be a title character in the film. He can be in the film, but he can't mm-hmm. be a title character, and that's why you couldn't have Planet Hulk, and it became Thor Ragnarok. Um, uh, so it's worth noting that this is Marvel's. This is Marvel's hail mary. They're like, we're going to try this, and we hope this works. And they did have Paramount distributing it. If you don't know how the the world of movies works. Um, when you see the 20th Century Fox logo before the original Star Wars movies, 20th Century Fox only financed the first Star Wars movie, and then all the other five Star Wars movies that came afterward were made independently by Lucasfilm, and then Fox put it out. Fox handled the prints and the advertising and stuff like that, but the film itself was made exclusively by one company. That's the way this film was done. Marvel made this without any studio telling them what to do. And if I remember mm-hmm. right, I think this is still pre-Disney buyout of Marvel. And I might I be wrong. I believe you are correct, yeah. I might be wrong, because I don't think Disney would have necessarily signed on with, with Paramount at this point. Um, but this is, this is Marvel's all-in, and it is... Guys, it's a doozy. It's a doozy, this film. Um, so I guess uh, we should just jump in uh, with a plot to Iron Man. Oh, just to jump in there, just to answer your question. Thank you, Google. Yes. Uh, Marvel was bought out by Disney in 2009, and the first Marvel movie made by Disney was Captain America, the first Avenger in 2011. Ah, which means that the first Thor, that means the first Thor, the second Iron Man, and the Incredible Hulk were all made by Marvel without the help of Disney. Interesting. I'll bet this is, correct. again, the movies that made Disney interested in buying Marvel. Had Iron Man failed, I don't know that Disney would have cared, frankly. Oh, entirely possible. Minus the MCU, the Marvel the the Marvel legal situation is you know maybe more like more trouble than it's worth, but hey, I think it worked out for them. I think Disney's going to be okay with Marvel when all is said and done. It's just a hunch. Yeah. It's just a hunch, Arthur. Here we go. The plot of Iron Man. Tony Stark is played by Robert Downey Jr. Playing Robert Downey Jr. as a wealthy industrialist son of Howard Stark, who is a partner with Obadiah Stane. Howard Stark and Obadiah Stane began Stark Industries, the world's premier technologically magical weapons developer. Upon the death of Howard Stark, Tony takes over, but he's really more of a figurehead to the company, or so you would think. Turns out he's also twice the genius his dad was. Going to MIT, he's a he's an engineer and he's a physicist and he's everything to everyone. He's everything that you would want smart guy. Reed Richards, smart guy, but 
bit of a drinking problem, bit of a player, not really that interested in the business of the company, except for the big Photoshop, or, or big photo ops, but Photoshop, big photo ops. So he goes out and he makes time at casinos and sometimes he goes out and he presents weapons. And that's where the film starts. It starts with Tony in a Humvee, having a wonderful time with soldiers, drinking, laughing, joking, improvising all around, being just cooler than cool when suddenly an IED blows him up. It blows him so far that he flashes back to everything that came before that. And you learn about him. You learn about his history, his relationship with one James Rhodes, a.k.a. Rhodey, his relationship with Pepper Potts, who is uh, kind of his Alfred, but is more than that. I think I think the Alfred comparison as a modern Alfred is actually a very... I think the Alfred comparison is pretty apt. Yeah, except that there are romantic tensions there. You have all of that, and then finally the present the presentation of his Jericho missile, which, when it explodes next to him, puts shrapnel into his body that, according to what he learns later, takes about two weeks to enter your heart and kill you. He has been captured by... Maybe the most problematic part of the movie is the is the trope of the nameless, faceless Middle East terrorists who want them to build him a Jericho missile. But his uh, but his partner in uh, in crime, his partner in capture, who is also enti- also a scientist, is there to help bring him back to life by putting an electromagnet in his chest, coerced to try and save his new friend, he agrees to make a Jericho missile, but that's not what he's doing. No, ma'am, no, sir. He is building himself his own personal mini arc reactor, a semi-nuclear reactor that runs an entire building, and he's managed to fit it into his chest. With that, he's going to power up a suit of armor that lets him beat up the bad guys, where he goes home and decides after doing so and losing his best friend, again, in a in a very Uncle Benish kind of way, going, you should be more responsible. He goes, yes, I should. He goes home, has a cheeseburger, and tells everyone we're no longer making missiles. Well, this is a problem because Obadiah Stane not only wants to make more weapons, but he planned to have Tony Stark killed after giving the after giving the information Tony Stark had to the people in the Middle East. You see, he is both dealing to the Americans and their Middle Eastern enemies dealing on both sides and when Tony finds out about this this is going to be a problem so he continues his quest to cover his tracks by killing everybody that he has done business with and eventually trying to do so to Tony meanwhile Tony learning that his weapons are in the Middle East flies to the Middle East fights the bad guys who got him blows up his weapons saves a bunch of people kills a bunch of people kills a lot of people then comes home and reveals that then comes home and reveals that he's Iron Man to the ones that he loves well Obadiah Stane is having none of that he's built himself a giant iron monger suit three times the size of the iron man suit but he can't power it so what does he do he paralyzes tony in a very james bondian type of way and instead of killing him leaves them there to die as he steals out his uh his new brand new super powered arc reactor that is powering what that's right a brand new suit of armor Tony has gone through many iterations. And what is my favorite part of the movie is you're going to find out as he learns how to be Iron Man, as he goes step by step by step, making, trying, and using the suit. And now he's got a suit that functions, but it needs this great arc reactor to work. And unfortunately, Obadiah Stane has stolen it for himself. Tony, dying on the floor, grabs his original arc reactor that barely has enough power to power the suit, where he fights Obadiah Stane on a giant freeway where they fight and there are near casualties. Tony's saving the day, but using information he had when he was first trying the suit he manages to defeat Stain through the help of Pepper Potts who's being protected by one agent Phil Coulson of S.H.I.E.L.D. He manages to again murder Obadiah Stain in a horrible way before going in front of all the press and saying in what I 
think was an improvised line, I am Iron Man. And credits roll and roll and roll until you see that there's another scene. You go, what is this all about? Tony goes in, his, his digital manservant Jarvis not answering. He says, who's there? And there's a shape, a shadow, a silhouette of one Samuel L. Jackson saying that he is Nick Fury, director of S.H.I.E.L.D. And he wants to talk to Tony about the Avenger Initiative. And the movie ends. So there's a lot going on. <laughs> Very true. Very true. That is the plot of Iron Man. I, it's only when recounting the plot that I go, there are a lot, there's a lot of plot in this movie. Like a lot yeah, happens. Yeah, there's, there's a decent amount movie. of plot in it. It seems simple while you're watching, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like a fairly straightforward, simple film when you're watching it? It well, just and flows so smooth. That's to its credit. When you've got, I mean, when you have a movie that as you're watching it feels like, oh my God, there's a whole lot going on here. That's usually not a good indication. If you are watching a movie that only afterwards, you, it, if you're watching a movie that it's like, this is straightforward, easy to follow. Um, and only afterward do you realize, oh, wow, they had a lot of plot lines running in that. That's good storytelling because if you had to work hard to follow everything that was going on, um, you know, that just, the more, in general, the more clear you can be in your storytelling, then the better you're doing. I mean, there's, it's worth, I don't, I, I mean, I, I don't even know where to start with this movie. This, there are things I didn't even cover. There's, there's the, one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is Pepper Potts needs to go get something off a computer in what is a, a, an incredibly tense scene. Um, I oh, haven't even wonderfully talked, tense. Um, I haven't even talked about the, the humor. Like The plot doesn't even say how much humor and how much fun there is going on. We haven't talked much about Phil Coulson mm-hmm. except that he's there. There is, there's so much going on in this film and it is all, every scene, watchable. This is one of those movies that if it's on and you don't have somewhere you have to be, I defy you to change the channel. I defy you to find that part where you're like, oh, okay, I'm done. I'm done for a bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was fine. Yeah, there was really, there was no like bad scene in this film. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, and it's compelling. It does, you know, it's very Dickensian in which every scene ends in something that makes you want to go to the next scene. There's just enough, hu- mm-hmm. it's, it is, Kevin Smith talked about this film once and said that he thought it was a perfect film. Not the greatest film, but a perfect film. Hmm. And I'm trying to find a place where I can fault him. And there's I, only the only there's one delivered the line. Only, there's one, yeah, go for it, yeah, please. Uh, I would say the only way that I could, I mean, this isn't even so much a craftsmanship thing. I thought the final fight with well, interesting. When I was watching the film in the theaters, I thought the final fight was a little bit underwhelming. Going back and watching it again, now I'm like, oh, there was actually more going on there than I thought. But the uh, the final, I, I, I thought the final takedown of Obadiah Stane was a little weak. Um, everything that went on with that, uh, and exactly how it worked out. But there were, it, but it's not like it didn't make sense. I mean, it was it was perfectly fine, uh, and most of the rest. And so I guess the. It says something if the only weak part of the film for me was a moment that was still perfectly fine. Yeah, I would say that the final fight, I'm okay with the final fight. It's it's not very long. I mean, it's it's really no. like if you look if you look at what happens, Tony shows up, they go into the, the freeway, they knock over a truck, they run into a bus, they almost dump a car onto the ground, and then Tony shoots into the air and then he's followed up in the air and then Yeah, I could have used falls. a few more minutes on the freeway there. Probably yeah, that would have. I think some, that would have fixed it in my mind. 
some suit versus suit. Um, and then the the end, the push the button, and and the like. There's. God bless you, Gwyneth Paltrow. Except your company, Goop, which I hate. If I, I, I'm not going to speak for you or for the Totally Super Podcast, but and light, and 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 the Geeks Radio who puts out these podcasts, we do not support Goop or anything that Goop stands for. Um, uh, and don't put those things where they say to put those things. It's not supposed to go in there. Um, I don't really know what you're talking about. Always do a Google. It's worth. So it. moving on. Um. So uh. So Gwyneth Paltrow coming hot off of um of some films I liked her in. I never really loved her in anything. I actually like her a lot as Pepper. I think she's been a great Pepper, except the one time yeah. when she yells, but you'll die is, is the one cringe worthy moment in the film. It's, it's bad enough that I, it, it reminds me of when, uh, when in X-Men, what's his name? The Senator Kelly, like has one moment where he goes, Bleh! and it's just, it's, it stands out so badly. Um, and oh, I guess I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that uh, that that line from her didn't jump out at me. And and here's here's the thing, the reason I can point out that as being the worst thing about the film, and it's not that bad, is that there's so little. Like you you have to search. If we want to be catty about the film, we got to search. Like you can go, oh well, the bad guy was, you know, is kind of weak. They go, Marvel's bad guys are a little bit weak, except that it's played by Jeff Bridges, and it's so smart to take such a nuanced actor. Yeah, he is a mm-hmm. mustache twirling bad guy. He really is. He's just, he's bad because he's bad. Like, what does he want? He wants to be president of the company. Tony doesn't even want to be president. I don't know. I can't tell you what, to this day what Obadiah Stane wants and why it's worth it to him to do all the shit that he's doing or what his, I guess, PG-13 podcast. I'll try to be good. Um, or or why he's, you know, willing suddenly to, to kill civilians as if nobody's going to say anything. Like, what, at what point he went crazy. But I don't really care because he can, he, he can deliver lines like, Tony Stark built this in a cave with a box of scraps. And you're just like, I'm in, right? Like I can't, it's, it's, it's Jeff Bridges being. Yeah. And I didn't even know the, uh, I didn't know the storyline, uh, really. Like I didn't know Obadiah Stane as a character at all. Like I said, I barely knew Iron Man before this film. So it was a genuine, like it was a genuine surprise reveal of, oh crap. I guess Obadiah Stane is the villain of this film. Oh, I don't know. Um, you, it, in it's, retrospect, in, in, comic, with a na- in yeah. retrospect, with a name like Obadiah Stane, I was like, you know, I really should have seen that coming. He's 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 a big-shouldered guy named Obadiah Stane with a bald head, a long beard, who smokes cigars. No, he's bad. He's <laughs> just well, they kind of also they did sort of a thing of setting it up that uh, um, that uh, the nameless head of the the Ten Rings terrorist organization could have potentially been the bad guy. Or like I like that bad. guy. That guy shows yeah, up. He was that great. guy is. That guy is the uh, is the captain of the USS Kelvin in Star Trek 2009, and I just like that guy. He's got such a presence, um, mm-hmm. and so interestingly, yeah, he he with, exudes uh, a quiet menace. With Thor, interestingly, with with Chris Hemsworth also in Star Trek 2009. Um, all that being said, I, I digress as I do. Um, I guess. We could go plot by plot, but I, this I, we've gotten into the habit of going character by character, and I sort of feel like this is the film yeah. that. Well, I'd like to say the first thing, yeah. the first major thing, even more so than the characters that jumped out at me, because I mean, Iron Man is a movie of a lot of firsts, and I mean, actually, now looking back at it, Robert Downey Jr. did more for the Marvel universe than just introducing uh, Tony, than his creation of Tony Stark. Oh, I know what you're going to say. Iron Man, hear you say it? Yeah, do it. Iron Man is the first. Marvel film that essentially is like this film is snark all the way through 
Um, and all of that comes from, and actually it's to John Favreau's credit too, because he famously, you know, usually only works from script outlines and then has the people improvise their lines on the scene. And sometimes that works sometimes, you know, uh, I think in Iron Man two, when we get to that, there's a little bit more debate as to how well that worked. But the fact is the, you know, pretty much anything that comes out of Tony Stark's mouth, um, and especially like the banter between him and Rhodey and especially the banter between him and Pepper, um, it's snark. There's, uh, I mean, there's no better way for me to put it. And Tony Snark, pretty Tony Snark, yeah. Um, and snark has a couple characteristics to it. Yes, it can be sarcastic. Um, it's usually quite smart. Um, there's a lot of undercutting involved. Uh, it usually implies uh, a faster-paced uh, delivery of dialogue, and which actually. Just just that alone pushes away from the tendency towards, you know, the melodrama of you will kneel before me or essentially kneel before Zod being the example of the melodrama side of the spectrum. Well, and let's um, keep in mind, this is the same summer that The Dark Knight is coming out. So if we look at mm-hmm. where superhero films have gone, they we're at a point now where Batman, we can't do Batman silly. We have to. Batman has to be. The, the most serious we're gonna like they tried silly with mm-hmm. the other batman it didn't work we've got spider-man doing sentimental but even that like there was a bit of silliness to that as well but they're you know so much tons of heart um they had not tried and i think this is what this does well they had not tried to just make it fun let's make yeah i'd, so, I'd to like see- to say there's nothing there's nothing silly about this film but there is so much of it that is light and that really has been Marvel's, looking back ever since then, that really has been Marvel's uh, usually their go-to theme. And we've talked about this before of it's, yeah, it's fun. It's, uh, there, there's a sense of not silliness, but there is a sense of playfulness and whimsy to it, um, which then ironically actually makes the dramatic moments all the more powerful. Yeah, it makes you the fact that you like him. You know, it's it goes back to I think there you can draw parallels between this and the movie Scream. Um, there's a postmodern, there's a self commentary going on. There's there's mm-hmm. there's the humor going on. It is almost it, like it, it, like he says the word superhero in the film. There's there's you know it's said both both in in a snarky way where he's like yeah to say that I'm kind of some kind of superhero, and then at the end of the movie. Nick Fury says it in earnest. You think you're the only superhero in the world? Like there's a, mm-hmm. there's a, you know, the fact that they're willing to do the idea of a superhero being that old style four color superhero from the, from the comics, um, mixing equal parts, just fun with a little bit of melodrama, but pulling that back is a perfect setup. Mm -hmm. And that's what made Joss Whedon so good to bring in for the Avengers. Because what Joss Whedon does is he takes that snark and, and acknowledges the silliness of all of it and then turns that on its ear into melodrama, um, which sets up the other half of the Marvel universe is, is is interestingly Iron Man was still, when they were making the Iron Man films, there was still, uh, a sense of tentativeness to fully embracing the superhero-ness of things. Uh, you know, it's 
I keep thinking back to that iconic moment in the first X-Men where, you know, essentially, what did you expect? Yellow spandex? That sense of, oh, we're going to lampshade this or we're not going to really go full superhero because we're not sure how well that's going to land. Um, and the reason why is because in both Iron Man and Iron Man 2, even though Tony Stark is specifically called and even references himself as Iron Man, um, the names of the villains uh, or even other superheroes that show up are referenced obliquely. Uh, at no point is Obadiah Stane called, uh, oh, I am now the Ironmonger. But there is yeah. a point in the film when Stane is talking to Stark and saying, he's like, hey, we're Ironmongers. This is yeah, our stock no, and trade. In Iron Man 2, there is a moment, you know, you know, Rhodey, who becomes, you know, the superhero War Machine, at no point does Rhodey say, I'm, you know, I'm War Machine now. But there's a moment where... In Iron Man three, they finally call they they finally call it code names and and Tony mocks it. Yeah, um, and it's so interesting. It's sort of, so uh, they, now we, interesting we, post we, post Avengers, they don't really uh, you know, post Avengers. No, everyone's a superhero. We're like, oh, you're a superhero. You got a superhero name. Cool. We are all okay with that. But so uh, but we haven't reached that wanna, point yet. That's the first thing I want to talk about because when we talk about Tony Stark. Um, and he's got to be the first one we talk about. When we talk about Tony Stark, I don't think we can just talk about Tony Stark in this film. I don't want to talk about all the iterations of Tony Stark that we're going to get, but I think it's worth noting in that anybody watching this film along with this podcast, anybody who goes back and listen to this podcast to watch this film, is necessarily watching this film probably after they've seen Avengers Infinity War. So let me just put it out there. Spoilers for the entire Marvel Universe starting right now. If you somehow are yeah, like, okay. I've never, I've never seen any of the Marvel movies, and I'm going to start with Iron Man to go along with the Totally Super Podcast. First of all, thank you. We are honored that you you want to bring us on that journey, but we're going to spoil the whole damn thing. So maybe you know, maybe don't um, see it first. Uh, so this is what you I'm see. This say. is why you should have listened to my warning at the very beginning of you know the best podcasts are the ones you don't listen to. Um, yes, the or the one you only listen to once. Um, this is what I want to say. Watching this film again, I am immediately brought to a moment in Avengers Infinity War that I realize what has happened and changed, not about Tony Stark necessarily, but about Iron Man. When Iron Man puts on his suit in Infinity War, he touches a chest and nanobots go all over him, covering him up, and then he's Iron Man. Mm -hmm. I watch this movie, and immediately from now on, when I watch... a Avengers Infinity War forward I'm going to say Iron Man's lost something he's lost something that this movie had the suit that he's in in this movie has heft there's heft to the ironness of the Iron Man suit and I Mm. have to say there's a clunk to it the clank something about it made it different than every other superhero now Iron Man is another strong guy in the sky not terribly different than than Vision or Gamora, although she can't fly. Like it's it's now that he is what he is now in the in the movies in Avengers: Infinity War. There isn't that sense of I'm a guy in a really strong freaking suit of armor that can just mm-hmm. like like that has to be like like screwed on, and you just get the sense of the heft of it. And I have to say yeah. that while oh, we'll talk about Stark in a minute, but Iron Man, I feel has lost something for me. Because I've watched Infinity War since I've watched that. I've watched this movie twice. 
Um, like I said, I would come back to it. I've watched this movie twice. I watched it once in preparation for this podcast, and I enjoyed it so much that I decided to show it to my older son, who I'd showed years ago, but like just liked it because, yay, but now my older son wants to be an engineer, so I, I showed it to him, and he really dug it on the Tony Stark developing the suit aspect of the film. Um, and in watching it twice and then watching that first scene in Infinity War since then, getting the sense of that the heft of the suit, the loss of that is palpable for me. I miss the Iron Man. I miss the Iron Man. What is your thought well, I feel as far like, as that's uh, concerned? You're right in that there is a, and that you could certainly explain that in the sense of, oh, he's researched better alloys that are lighter. Um, I mean, the history of, uh, the history of weaponry, at least on the defense side, is about uh, coming up with materials that are both stronger and lighter. Um, but yet with that comes a sense of, yes, loss of weight, both literally and metaphorically. Um, that first like silver gray Iron Man suit that he built in the cave, um, when he walked out with it, when he was wearing it, you you weren't just seeing this big hulking, uh, you know, ungainly robot thing. What you were also seeing so clearly was a physical representation of um, all the blood and sweat and tears and that this genius had poured into this. Um, there was a very, very strong connection between the suit and Tony. By the time that you get to really Iron Man 3, um, and certainly Infinity Wars, where, you know, you just press a button and boom, now I have a suit magically. Um, you lose that sense of connection. You lose that sense of, like, it's almost like the suit is now easy. It's no longer earned somehow. It just doesn't and then also there's a, to me anymore. And I think that's, yeah. I think that that's key is that it's like, it, it protects him. It, it changes the personality to be in it, but it also just from a sheer, you know, bang, bang, pow, pow, kiss, kiss, bang, bang point of view. The idea of being hit in the, like when I think about being hit in the face by this Iron Man suit, I'm like, Oh, that would be devastating. But when I think about getting mm. hit in the face by the Iron Man suit in, Infinity War or like Iron Man three, the suits just like come apart. They 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 fall apart like the DeLorean at the end of Back to the Future. Like it's it's they're they're crappy a little bit. Um, which I know I'm stealing the line from the Honest Trailer, but it's true. And now that it's all nanobytes, when you see him, he gets hit by lasers, and the suit kind of you know fades away and then comes back. Like it's it doesn't feel like getting hit by that suit would be that bad i mean it would be bad but like it'd be no worse than being well, hit by captain america like this... I mean, it, it has a, it lacks a sense of realness in much the same way that uh you know cgi can be infinitely more detailed than the rubber mask but as soon as you go to a cgi alien over the rubber mask you you definitively lose something that is uh that is undescribable yeah and it's even in the design of the suit i was looking there's a there's a poster for Infinity War in my uh, in my son's room, and the suit there is all these sleek lines. It's all you know. It's all there. There are no hard edges to it. It's cool and sleek, and and it doesn't have the again the sense of being a man in a metal in a you know mechanized metal suit. And I just feel like mm -hmm. the Iron Man loses something that was here, and and I didn't realize I missed it. So I saw it here mm. and when he was in there, you know, grabbing things and punching things and when he would like land and you hear the clank when he landed, I was like, I yeah. felt, I, I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. 
I, I forgot I liked this. You know, it's it's like it's like Thai food. When you try it again, you're like, oh, I forgot. This is amazing. And so, really, a lot of a lot of props need to, or uh, you know, kudos to the uh, to the sound team for that too, sure, because yeah. you know, because now you now you've got me thinking about okay, um, in just the in the craft of film, you've hit the nail on the head. <laughs> apt metaphor or apt uh, analogy, whatever. Um, in that impact in any kind of action film uh, is you want it to have a bit of impact. Uh, in video game design, they talk about that too. It's why uh, the games that really have good impact, the fighting games with that, is that when your character gets hit, the screen will shake just a little bit. like, And you consciously don't even notice it um, unless you're specifically looking for it. But just that little bit of the, the screen shaking just a little bit, and they will slow down the they'll slow down the frame rate, they'll slow down time just for an instant to highlight that hit. And your brain doesn't notice it, but it does sell this moment of impact and crunch um, that you definitively miss if they don't do those things. So now you've got me wondering, okay, you know, if you're making an action film, you know, or say you're, especially if you're making a film like Transformers, Iron Man, um, a movie where basically big things hitting each other, which by definition requires big hits. What are the things that you bring to the table for that? And certainly one of the highest things that would be on my list is you want a great Foley artist um, yeah. who can which is, really which is just find just the, the right sound to, yeah. yeah. I just feel like they, they didn't, that's not what they were going for later, um, which is fine. But okay, let's talk about Tony Stark. I, mm -hmm. you know, people say Robert Downey Jr. doesn't age, and I want to say yes, he does. Um, he looks, yes, he does. Notably, I'm looking at a younger. picture of the man right now. He ages. Yeah. Um, I have to say, just in terms of his look, I think that, damn the man, I think he's a better looking dude now than he is as as Tony Stark. And I'm looking at a picture of him from the time on the Wikipedia page where I am. Uh, keeping track of what I'm doing. And there's a shot of him from the time and his hair is short and his beard is gray and there's some gray in his hair. They got rid of all of that for this Tony Stark. His hair, first of all, it's you want to have a good time, watch the length of his hair in this movie because it gets short, long, short, long, short, long throughout the film. It's really funny. Um, they've never let that happen now. But the the mustache is much more like neat and pronounced. It's, everything is dyed jet black. It's much more of a... Of, Mm -hmm. They're playing the young playboy thing. And I think that that I as much as I like him in the film and you go, oh, he's immediately Tony Stark. I feel like it takes him a film or two to become the Tony Stark that I like so much that that he's still finding the character here. And yet what he has found is so brilliant at the time. He seems so perfect for it. Again, to his credit, this is a man who did the job so well. They said he was born to play it. And then every other time he played it, he was better than this time. Um, yeah, which again, no, I, yeah, so I would agree with you on that in that this, I went back and watched it and I agree with you that yes, both he and, you know, and the script writers were still finding the character of Tony Stark. Uh, but he came screaming out of the gate, delivering a, you know, an a 95% performance and everything since then has become, you know, 96, 97. Um, I will, I, you will hear me talking at length, extolling. Uh, how much I loved Tony Stark and Iron Man 3 when we get to that one. Uh, but you're absolutely right. This one, 
you know, this was not like the first season of Buffy where, you know, by the end of the season, it was clear, okay, they have found their legs, they're ready to go. Um, this was right out of the gate, just top notch. Yeah. Um, I think that his character is outside of the actor portraying what a great job he does. I think what I like about Tony is you do get a sense of the why the entire first half of this movie is essentially the scene of Spider-Man in the wrestling ring from the Spider-Man movies. Cause you think about it, Peter mm-hmm. Parker is a yeah. great guy. He's a great kid. He is the purest, hardest, best guy in the entire world. And then he's a jerk for five minutes. Then something bad happens. And then he becomes a hero. Tony Stark is a jerk for the first half of the movie and learns that he has mm-hmm. to be a hero and then becomes a guy who's like, there's nothing else. There's only the mission. Um, yeah. Well, it's really, is... ooh, ooh, phrase coming to me now. So when we talk about a superhero's origin story, the origin story is not just how did you get your powers? It also crucially has to be how did you get your motivation? Yeah. Why? Not just how are you a hero, but why? Why? Why, are, yes. why, why do you go out and do this? You don't have to go do this. Um, I think that the, the transformation that he goes through is so key to everything else that he does from this point forward. Again, the, you know, it is still rough around the edges compared to where he'll be. If, there, if he had never done another Iron Man movie, you would have said that it was one of the most perfect superhero performances of all time. It's just that he gets mm-hmm. so much better. So I want to be very clear what I'm saying about that. But it's also what they do with the character in in because this is not the way the character was in the comics at the time. He was not snarky like this. It was not. This is something no, that, that was, was added straight up Robert Downey. Um, but then it also it also turned him around and 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 made you saw the motivation, the guilt that he felt, and and the fact that that turns into Tony Stark's mission. And also fatal flaw, the idea that he wants to put a suit of armor around the world. That's he says it out loud. Mm-hmm. And that's Yeah, we that's, need to talk about that. Yeah. Um and this is where this is where that starts. This is where he this is about him undoing what he did, um, but then realizing when there are threats that he can't beat on his own, the hubris that he has, he doesn't have that hubris until Avengers. where you realize you go, Oh, he thinks he can fix everything, and he can. He gets to Avengers, and he can't fix it, so he still wants to try and fix everything on his own. Yeah, the, the seeds of that hubris are so cl- especially watching the film now, going back, knowing Tony's arc, uh, especially by the time that we get to Age of Ultron. Tony's uh, arc. Where, huh? I said Tony's arc. He's Tony Stark. Tony's, He's got Tony's, Tony's arc. arc. He's Tony Stark. Oh, Tony's Stark. Oh, oh my God. Uh, well done. You're welcome, well, folks. Well caught. Um, so the uh, um, the seeds of that hubris are so clearly visible to me now. The uh, I think there was a line that just jumped out at me this time watching it where he said, uh, I don't like the idea, uh, something along the lines of, I don't like, I don't trust other people to use my weapons to protect the world. So, I'm just going to do it, which really just yeah. points to it, it, throughout everything. Tony Stark, it's a very, he's a very interesting character because he's an example of, he is definitively megalomaniacal uh, in that, you know, he has a massive God complex, but he's also one of the few characters I've ever seen who has a massive God po- complex, who was also the good guy. And, Really, the the entire you know, 
the entirety of Stark's arc, uh, which is just as much fun to say as Tony's arc, um, is watching basically somebody with the God complex try to do right and what happens when they finally reach the point where they essentially where they reach the where they reach Icarus going too close to the sun that moment when they realize oh crap I'm not God you know it is worth noting though that had he not saved the world in Avengers and he did save the world in Avengers he really did um but had he not Mm -hmm. done that he's a supervillain let's just be clear like like I'm sure that the people of Sokovia don't think he's a great guy so really it's just that more people are alive because Tony Stark has done what he's done than would otherwise be. But also there are a bunch of people who are dead because Tony Stark did his thing that would not otherwise yeah. be. You know what and I so, realized watching it this time? So when I watched the film, the like when I, when I first watched the film, um, the, you know, the sensation that you get is, okay, Tony Stark, he is a, you know, he's a war dog. He's a, um, you know, he is a war profiteer. He sells weaponry. Um, and then he gets, you know, caught in this situation uh, in the Middle East and then realizes just how terrible these weapons are and then comes back and says, okay, we're not making weapons anymore. Um, And actually, watching it this time, I realized that is not actually what happened. His problem never is, like, he never dislikes the weaponry. He, what happens is that he says, no, I build these terrible engines of destruction in order to protect uh, because I firmly believe that they protect people. Um, what he discovers in the Middle East is not, oh, look at these terrible things that these weapons do to people, but rather he realizes, oh, all of these weapons have fallen into the wrong hands. So it's not that he has any kind of pacifist realization of, you know, maybe we don't make the world safer by giving it more weapons. Instead, he just thinks, you know what? Maybe we only make the world safer if I'm the only one that I trust with my brilliant weapons. Well, and that's the thing. I think that you're partly right, but I think that seeing the destruction of a Yinsen, Yinsen, the character's name, uh, Yinsen's town, because it's specifically his town that's destroyed, I think that mm-hmm. th- that weighs on Tony as well. That like, oh, the, oh, the casualties to civilians, I, we have to also minimize civilian casualties, unlike Superman mm-hmm. or Batman. It's really important that civilian casualties be minimized. So I think that. Well, then, it, which is about, I mean, but even that is a motivation for, oh, that's why we make our weapons smarter. Because yeah. smart weapons will minimize civilian casualties. But that's not the same thing as saying that's why maybe we should dial back the weaponry. Now, I want to, I don't want to spend forever on it because we really could spend a podcast on this. But the choice <laughs> of the Middle Eastern bad guys is. A problem of the time. Um, it's a really hard film to watch for that reason sometimes, along with, you know, even movies that predated 9-11, like True Lies, where it's going to be, mm-hmm. we got the 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 bad guys in turbans are the ones who are going to get you. Um, yeah. We are only seven years post uh, 9-11. If for the film to be relevant in the, in the day that it came out, it's important to note that it was truly because we're still in the Bush era right now uh, when when this movie mm-hmm. comes out or or the Bush era is just about to end but we're in the Bush era while it's while it's being shot. Um, it's worth noting that we are we are smack dab 
in in this conflict where we feel like they are the bad guys and we're the good guys. And we were starting. I mean, to get it's a only a couple. It's only a couple years after the first really major story of the journalist who was captured uh, in Afghanistan and straight up beheaded on camera. Yeah, and so this is calling the, on that. With, this is calling on. Yeah. That so the time. whole. Yeah, when Tony Stark is on camera, I certainly remember seeing that in the film. Like it, Daniel. Pearl, somebody yeah. on camera while people are, uh, you know, while you know, while terrorists are reading demands, especially in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, was a particularly evocative uh, image. Yeah, and and now it's a little problematic because you know as we, time has gone on and we realize that that mm-hmm. that we've now it's it's reached into perfectly peaceful Muslims have been victimized because of this mentality that the film allows itself to have. Um, mm-hmm. It's to the film's credit that it also shows, uh, you know, a Middle Eastern man loving his kids and just wanting to go on with his life. It shows like it mm-hmm. does that. It does that, too. But I think that the nameless, faceless, the nameless, faceless Middle Eastern bad guys that you can blow up like stormtroopers is a trope that I hope is dead um, because it was the most uncomfortable part of this film for me was that. Um, mm mm-hmm. And and just because it had been done so much up to that point, True Lies is a film I can't watch anymore. Like True Lies, I'm just like, oh, we're totally fine with just killing nameless and endless amounts of Middle Eastern people. So, mm-hmm. so I'm gonna give the film the film its one pass for being a, a product of its time, and Marvel immediately recognizes the the problem with that i think that it's it's worth noting that we don't mm-hmm. really do that again even by the time we get to captain america we're not even killing nazis we're like hey you know we're not going to simplify really complicated issues mm-hmm. by by we're, we're just going to make it hydra so that we don't have to just talk about you know we don't have to deal with the serious issues in history we can just go immediately to hey these these are bad guys let's get them so yeah i think there's yeah. a there's certainly nowadays there it does mean even more so there's a there is a certain strange and beautiful simplicity to having the bad guys be monstrous aliens in a lot of the new Marvel films because it's yeah, like, or yeah, robots, that one is pretty or, clear that, yeah. yeah, okay, that's cool, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, well, so let's jump to uh, Terrence Howard as uh, James Rhodes. Don't get used to him because he will be gone. Um, I'm going to say that, and, and I know that I, I like him a lot in this film. I like him a lot. I would dare say I might. What's uh, why is it? Why am I blanking on the guy who plays Rhodey now? Um, Don Cheadle. From Don Cheadle. Thank you. Um, I am going to say that while I think Don Cheadle is a better actor, I think that Terrence Howard. Um, I like him better as Rhodey than I really like Don Cheadle as Rhodey. Your thoughts? Uh, I would disagree with that. I and part of that though is also the script. I mean, Rhodey is. The roadie that I've come to know through with Don Cheadle has a lot of depth and a lot of a, a lot of subtlety and nuance, but that's also because they, especially in Iron Man Two, uh, Rhodey was a much more integral character. Like Rhodey in this one is, he's he's the buddy, but he's kind of utilitarian. Um, I like if you think about it, this is a film that they probably could have made like the story could have been told without Rhodey in it. I got the sense that in this film that it was like, oh, Stark's friend is Rhodey, so we got to include Rhodey. Um, he's not nearly as integral to the plot as Stane 
or uh, or pepper. Um, but so with that sense, uh, you know, there was nothing about Terrence Howard's roadie that jumped out at me, but that might have just been more because of the character and less because of, you know, Howard's performance. I would say that, um, and you're right, in Iron Man 2 and 3, he gets a sense to shine. Lately, he, he's, he has been sort of an add-on character who happens to be there. Um, mm-hmm. And... And I think, you know, it's worth noting that also he's had a lot of chances to be good. I think that Terrence Howard, I immediately get who and what Rhodey is the minute he's on screen the very first time. And I really get the sense of his his friendship with Stark just seems more genuine in this film than Don Cheadle's ever does. I just don't get mm. Don Cheadle, the connection between these two guys, I really sense. Now... Just, you know, because we'll talk about it in Iron Man 2, but I'll just say it here because we don't need to say it twice. Um, Terrence Howard saw himself as the co-star of this film and got paid just about as much as Robert Downey Jr. for making Iron Man 1. So when Robert Downey Jr. got the giant pay raise for Iron Man 2, he was like, hold on, don't I get that too? And Marvel was like, no. And he was like, yeah, I do. And they were like, okay. I always kind of wondered what happened there. Yeah, it was it was because not just money, but also that he felt it was the Tony and Rhodey show and he was going to be War Machine. And it was going to mm-hmm. be Iron Man and War Machine, Batman and Robin. Like These are a duo. And a lot of this film was cut, uh, evidently. Uh, same thing with Obadiah Stane. A lot of this film was cut to be more Tony. The more we realize what he was doing, keep in mind, mm-hmm. films at the time did not just hang with their heroes the whole time. They hung with everybody. Um, yeah. It was... So bringing it back and they excised all these scenes to give Tony more to do. And and so he, when it was clear that that War Machine was just part of the ensemble and it, the movie really is Tony, well, then it's 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 clear that he's not going to get paid the same. And when he didn't, you know, they left with really bad blood. Uh, he felt, you know, he to this day has said that he feels that Robert Downey Jr. betrayed him by not standing up for him in that case. But... Mm. That's that. I I mean I think he's utilitarian, but I like him. Um, oh, but I Stein, There's not much to say about him. I can tell you, I don't know why he does anything he does. He is just a mustache oh, bad guy. I that just, uh, that didn't necessarily. Uh, I I I felt that was pretty clear in the sense that, um, I mean the storyline that I got was, Stain was you know, uh, Howard Stark's second in command, uh, for the longest time. And absolutely, it's the sort of thing, it's the, it's, it's the Macbeth scenario of where you've got this guy who is clearly, you know, aside from, you know, the king, metaphorically, I'm the biggest heavy hitter, I've been here the longest, I've been doing the most for the company, and at the moment of transition, suddenly it's just like, oh, and hey, it's the king's, it's the king's jerky son who gets the reins of the kingdom. Um... I mean, I got the sense that Stain had wanted to be the head of Stark Enterprises for the entirety of, you know, Tony's, uh, of Tony's reign. Um, and it was only just recently that he decided, he's like, nope, screw this, I'm going to kill him. Um, yeah, and but that's it's, just- worth, it's worth noting he's willing to kill Tony, to kill all the guys in the Middle East, and to kill a random family on the freeway. You know, it's just, it's, he's just a bad, he's, he's just a bad guy. Um, I think that we would complain more, and maybe you would complain more, if Jeff Bridges was not bringing all of that nuance to him. 
I think that the layers oh, yeah, that you're no, sensing is not in the script. It's in the performance of of Jeff Bridges, the choice to be gentle and nice, the choice to bring pizza and go here, have a slice, here, have another, like the the choice to mm-hmm. to make you like him, but also to when it comes time to mustache twirl to do that so well. Um, I completely agree with you. Yeah, the- I think. I, I think, I mean, I think he doesn't get enough credit. He doesn't get enough credit for how good this film is because a lot of scenes rely on him to carry those scenes, and he does it with mm-hmm. a plum. I mean, Jeff, he's Jeff Bridges. He's always amazing. But I mean, yeah, he's, he's he actually. I mean, now way. Stain still ends up being one of the better villains in the Marvel canon, at least in the films. Um, and that's the thing. Yeah, Stain. Don't get me wrong. Um, Stain is a he is a very simple villain. Um, you know, you're saying like you, you didn't necessarily get why he does what he does. Like, even though I understood why he did what he, like, he's just a man who clearly just wants power um, and as much as possible. And while that is an understand or, you know, so I understand that is his motivation. Um, That still doesn't make it a complex motivation in any way, shape or form. It's not because he's got this backstory or anything. Um, And when you have, a, especially when you have a villain with that simple a motivation, um, yeah, sometimes you just really need a really good actor to, as you say, bring the nuance to that simplicity. And that's what really fleshes it out in a, in a million and one unspoken ways. Again, we can say the same thing about Yinsen. Um, Yinsen's a simple character, utilitarian character. We've seen this guy before, right? He's the Mr. Miyagi. He's the, he's the mentor. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, Sean Tobe, who plays him, does such a great job of bringing humanity to this guy who could again there is be boring and he's not um and he's not in the script i, I gotta say the script the script gives a, a lot of poetry to this guy and so i don't mm-hmm. want to just say oh it's just the actor because the script also gives the 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 i'm it's, i'm going to go see my family now is crushing no matter who says it but this yeah, guy what strikes me what strikes me the most about yinsen is uh and especially it works out so well in contrast to Tony and everything around him is he is far and away the most gentle character in the film. Um, more so than anyone else in the film, everything about the man exudes that genuine desire for not just goodness, but peace um, and kindness. There's, a, there's such a soft touch to that character. Um, and then we have Gwyneth Paltrow as, as Pepper Potts. I have grown to like Pepper as time has gone on. And I think that she has a f- couple good scenes here. But I have to say she is my least favorite character in this film. I just, I, I wish that she came across as smarter. I wish that, you know, she's clearly supposed to be, you know, his girl Friday. I, I wish mm-hmm. that she That was had literally a- the phrase I was just about to say. Yeah, um, and and you know, and no, you know, no surprise that when Jarvis finally becomes Vision, the the he makes the suit Friday, um, but she just isn't bringing the script is giving her a lot of great things to say and do, but I feel like she is not at the level of everybody. She she's not where everyone else is. I'm trying to think who would have been. She has to have a softness to offset Tony. And I like the her. It's interesting because while I don't like her in the role, she is amazing chemistry with Robert Downey Jr. You think that they're like actually phenomenal chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. And it's worth noting that she also improves over the course of 
the films. I like I I actually I'll be honest, I even like I really liked her performance in this one. Okay. Prove me wrong, sir. Oh no, it's it's not about proving wrong. Um the I liked her as a character. The only thing that I disliked um in it, and this is again, you know, watching with the I guess the benefit of 2018 hindsight is um the his girl Friday relationship is also probably one of those movie tropes that should eventually, you know, be quietly put out to pasture. Um, it is She's half his girl you know, Friday, half have, Money Penny. It's, it's. I think there's hmm? Money Penny in there too. There's the will they? Yeah, there's there. It, it's the the long suffering woman quietly uplifting, you know, the a hole guy because deep down they know he's got a heart of gold. Um, it's. Not only is it uh, not useful for a good model in any way uh, for us to be moving towards, uh, it's also it, it's done. Um, but so that being the that being the big issue, um, it was I didn't like the you know especially now looking back I don't like the power dynamic at play there. That being said, I thought Gwyneth Paltrow uh, put on a very good. Uh, show of, you know, consistently in her performance, I saw that sense of tolerance, quiet, continuous exasperation, um, and genuine affection towards Tony. Um, like, you know, I thought she captured all the notes of the character very well. What I didn't like was necessarily what they did with the character's relationship. And they and they do well to correct that in subsequent films. Iron Man two puts her mm-hmm. in charge of Stark, and she's in charge of everything by then. Um, yeah. I would say I would go the exact opposite of what you just said. I would say that well, I do have the same problems with the with her characterization being a thing of the past and a thing that needs to be quietly done away with. Um, I think that the script gives Pepper a lot of good things to do. And I think that she does an average job of portraying it. The fact is she's with, you know, she's standing next to, you know, one of the best act, one of the greatest actors of our generation. And she is not that. I'm trying to think who could have done it. Um, You know who I think would have been amazing in the role? You know who I want in this role? It's Kate Winslet. That's who I I see that. It would be, you would end up with a much stronger Pepper. Yes. But still with the ability to be soft, still with the ability to, portray like i almost said like a cameron diaz but cameron diaz is like a little colder um yeah i don't know if i would have seen cameron diaz in it um well i think i can see a world where she would have been cast in that role um yeah i could i could possibly see uh you know what i'm thinking um the the you spoke of the chemistry between uh downey and paltrow um what it reminds me of the most is uh the chemistry between Seth MacFarlane and Charlize Theron, uh, both in oh, yeah. A Million Ways to Die in the West and the Orville, um, which then immediately makes me think, okay, would have been interesting to see what Charlize Theron does with the role because she is undeniably, like, not just a talented actress, but she has she has a core of steel and but intelligence she's also, but she's in also, every character but, she portrays. But she doesn't have a core of steel wrapped up in in warmth. She's also, you know, it tends to be cold um, in her. Mm. I mean, I guess, you know, 
Gwyneth Paltrow, Gwyneth Paltrow was very much the it girl of the time coming, or she was coming down off mm-hmm. of that after Shakespeare in Love from just a few years back. Um, and I don't yeah. want to say that she's terrible. She's not, and she gets better. And I don't know who to have this good a chemistry with Robert Downey Jr. Frankly, her chemistry with him is the best chemistry he has with anybody in any of the Marvel movies. Like, no and matter who he's honestly, paired with, he's great. But the two of them, there's like, you put him with Cap and they're yeah. good, but she crackles with him. You put him with Scarlett Johansson, they're good, but she crackles with him. She Yeah, and, and for the purposes of this film, I feel like the chemistry is the most important thing. Yeah, and then she raises her game as time goes on later. So I think that any mm-hmm. misgivings I have, and maybe just the one line, but you'll die. Maybe she's not, you know, figured out how to do action. Yeah, it's, Man, she you does love, later, right? you, you, it's, it's something I just I just noticed in everything. Like when you when you when you dislike somebody's delivery, you never just describe the delivery. You like you you have to imitate it. I do, I do. It's uh, I, I I do every it too. time. I have to everyone I know. If someone says something I don't like, I just mock it back to them. It's no, no, that I've known you for over ten years. That tracks. No, no, I know you for ten years. That tracks. <laughs> <laughs> Well played, Montague. Well played. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, so, uh, so the one other person we need to bring up really briefly is Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. It's interesting. Do you know the story of this? Do you know why he's Nick Fury? What, the fact that uh, that ultimate uh, that ultimate Marvel Nick Fury was based on Samuel L. Jackson. So when they decided to make Nick Fury in the film, they were like, "Hey, let's cast Samuel L. Jackson." That's that's the story. Yes, isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? I the, love the, that the so very much. Art imitating life and imitating art—it's great. It's really, and what really I love cool. the most about that is there are few actors I can think of who would appreciate that more than Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, this oh, is yeah. the man who, when they were filming, uh, when they were filming *Phantom Menace*, uh, you know, just had a moment where, in the middle of filming, he stopped and he was like, "Can we just?" Can we just address for the fact that I'm talking to mother effing Yoda right now? Like yeah. he got as excited as a four year old kid. Yeah, no, it's 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 I I'm happy to see him there at the end. And what a great choice because he he has a lot of heavy lifting to do, including the upcoming Captain Marvel movie. Um, so yeah. So this film comes in at 126 minutes. Its budget was 140 million dollars. It made 585.2 million dollars at the box office. Woo. Um. Uh, Tons of money all around, built Marvel, um, and built a character that, I mean, that frankly uh, changed comic book movies forever. I mean, it's like even like you watch Suicide Squad, it's trying to be this. You watch, you know, from this point forward, mm-hmm. they're taking this this idea of snark, the, the, the snappy patter. This is what they're trying to do now because of him. Sometimes mm-hmm. it works, sometimes it doesn't. I think that that you have the you feel like this redefined it. Avengers redefined it again. I think Guardians redefined it yet again. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that we're getting to the point where we are learning the range of comic movies. Sometimes it goes too far one way or the other, but I think we're learning the the range in which they can work. Um, and I think it all starts here. And so that I, being, I said, just like to point okay. out as a as a shout out to uh, to John Favreau. Um, if you go back some 10 years and way, watch that. We didn't that... even talk about the fact that John Favreau, the director, plays Happy Hogan. If you didn't know that listening, because I'm sure there are people who don't. Yeah, well, Happy I, Hogan, I was literally driver? about. Uh, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I was. Uh, oh, well, that, yes. Also that he plays uh, Happy, who is a great bodyguard character. 
He's but, there, um, and he and if he you stays go back, with it in 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 Iron Man three, where he doesn't direct, and he has a huge role in Spider Man Homecoming, where where he didn't direct either, while he was off like directing major things for Disney. Like it's it's now, like the fact that he stayed by thing. this so character. It's amazing. If you go back ten years and watch a delightfully movie that oh my gosh does it not hold up in not just uh not just quality but also uh also appropriateness a uh, film called PCU um wow. where where John I'm almost positive it was John Favreau playing the stoner the dumb stoner character which was my first experience of John Favreau and you look at that one and like if I had to think of anyone and say, hmm, I wonder who in this film that I'm, this, you know, essentially 90s version of Revenge of the Nerds that I'm watching right now, of all of these people, which one of them would be the least likely to, A, become a director, B, become a director who essentially creates the template for successful superhero films for the next 10 years after his first superhero film? John Favreau would not, or like John Favreau would have been my choice for the least likely. Um, and uh, and look what you have done now, Mr. Favreau. So my, my hat is just off going through his f- filmography, he made a movie called Made. He made Elf for thirty three that made two twenty. Zathura for sixty five, which made sixty four. Iron Man one forty made five eighty five. Iron Man two two hundred made six twenty three. He stepped back. Cowboys and Aliens at one sixty. Three and it made 174 didn't do so well an amazing little film called chef that if you haven't seen you must see it's astounding at 11 million also starring him made 46 million jungle book at 175 made almost a billion dollars and he's doing the live action lion king right now as we speak this is a guy oh and, he's and, doing that one wow. and yet and yet he had time in the middle to continue to play happy hogan whenever they ask him to mm-hmm. it's astounding it's so cool um, I want to know this guy. He seems awesome. Anyway, okay. On a scale totally. of one to uh, on one to five bucket heads, do you? Uh, here, I'll say it to you. What do you give uh, the Iron Man? Uh, I would give it four bucket heads. A rock solid four. Uh, you know what? Let me bump it up to a four point two five because of what it meant for the uh, for the superhero industry after that. Um, there were some scene like there were. Uh, some moments like the uh, like the final fight that didn't like really grab me, but there was just so much fresh and new to it. I remember seeing it, and even going back now and seeing just how well crafted a film this is. Um, yeah, no, this this is one of the greats. I'm gonna pull it in at four point seven five for me. Um, the only reason it's not getting a five is I have to leave room for films like The Avengers. And this, I don't know, dude, I, I know, I'm going to give it a five. You know what? I'm going right. to give it a five. Um, is it as good as the Avengers? No. Do I watch it as much as the Avengers? No. But this film, with the exception of Tony, I'll die, um, makes no mistakes. It is, it is a film that is as ambitious as it can be. It doesn't have the right or the ability yet to be as ambitious as, as it will become, but it's, it takes every single cent, every single bit of heart, every single bit of thought, and they made the absolute best film they could possibly make with the money, the budget, 
that they had. They took risks all over the place, casting Robert Downey Jr. as the lead, making that guy a star, taking Jeff Bridges uh, and and keeping him in the zeitgeist, turning Iron Man into the most popular, like the, the most popular superhero around from a third tier to the most popular superhero you're going to five find launching all of marvel introducing the concept of snark into superhero films and doing so without any bloat um i i it's hard to imagine a film you know this film is the fellowship of the rings of superhero films Two Towers is yep. better Very in many apt. ways, yeah. but also makes giant but mistakes. But Fellowship, Ri- Fellowship of the Rings, like this one, is, for me, Fellowship is the most perfect of that trilogy. Yeah. It's not my favorite of the trilogy. Actually, Two Towers is. But but it is, you watch it and you just go, I can't find anything wrong with this film. It's and so I can't find anything well wrong crafted. With so it's yeah. the reason I'm giving it a five, even though I know there are other films that I like more and even films that might be, you know, more glorious. I think that the more I see Infinity mm-hmm. more, the more I like it. I didn't like it on first viewing. Uh, I, I forget what I said about it. I think I, I had real problems with it in our review. I've seen it many times. Wait, since. wait, wait. So wait, which one? Which film? Uh, Infinity War. Uh, you you gave Infinity War a five when we recorded like right after seeing it. And then a week later, I think you had you had lowered it to either a four or a 4.5. I'm going to pull back from that. I've watched it again since, and it's awesome. It's awesome. I've seen it a bunch of times. <laughs> it's so good. You, you, went back to the, you went back to the buffet, and you decided, you know what? I want everything on this menu. Yeah, I just I did. I was like, you know what? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I, I, he's here to steal a necklace from a wizard. Damn it, you've got me. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in for all of it. Um, so, uh, so, but I can't. I mean, if what standard do I need to hold a film to in terms of giving it fives? Like, it's a perfect movie that does everything it's supposed yeah. to do. I, it's, hey, yeah, credit where credit is due. Yeah. Um, so that's Iron Man. Um, so next week, uh, we are going to take a, an enormous uh, step down in quality. To uh, to Iron Man two, the much maligned Iron Man two, a film that I'm on record as saying that I dislike um, uh, quite a bit. Um, that I sometimes don't know which one I dislike more, this or Iron Man three. Um, I'm willing to return back to it and give it its due again. I'm going to give it a chance. I got to be it. honest, I never disliked Iron Man two, and there were some things that I really liked what they did. Um, so I'm looking forward to watching it again. Like. I'm going to be watching it again specifically, and I almost never do this, specifically looking for the moments. It's like, okay, what are the bad parts that everyone keeps talking about? Um, well, I can tell and, you and I can tell you, I can tell you ahead of time, it's the, the improvisational nature of it. It starts to shine through. I start seeing actors having fun on a set, and it, it I stop seeing characters for a little bit. But mm. maybe I'm wrong. It's a film that was very successful. It's a film that some people really like. Uh, so, hey, let's give it its due. Let's give it its chance. Let's give it its shot. Is it going to be five stars? I don't think it's going to be. But maybe I will come away from it, as I have on some other things, liking it more than I thought. I'm looking at you, like Fantastic Four. Um, like, I liked it more than I thought I would. Uh, but that is all I can say about that. Uh, so that's next week. Uh, but for now, my name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers. Stay super. Stay super.
Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Enlight Entertainment. 